Morning, gentlemen. So good to see you on this May the 19th, 2011. Hope you're having a good springtime. We, uh, we have a great time in here, and, and I want to say uh, what a pleasure it is for me to, to uh, get to teach uh, each Thursday morning in here. I'm always amazed when I walk in here and you guys are here. <laughs> but uh, uh, it's wonderful that we have so many different churches represented. Some of you that don't have a church, that feel free to come, and uh, hopefully you feel free to invite your friends here. And uh, I just want to say, it's, as a teacher, it's just wonderful to be able to come in, and everything is done so wonderfully. And uh, I don't have a thing to think about except what our lesson is that day. And that would not be possible without a whole bunch of men and women who make this possible. And I'd like for us to take just a moment to thank these folks. I want you to hold your applause to the end, but you'll get an idea of what's involved here. If I mention your name and you're here, just stand up. We have a, an amen leadership team that oversees this whole thing year after year. They plan for it. They communicate with us. They make all the decisions. I don't make any decisions except to try to be here on time, and I messed up once on that this year. Uh, and, I, and I do what they tell me to do, but they really lead this whole ministry. And that would be John Coakley. You guys stand up. Jimmy Edwards, Mike Gatliff, Jay Good, Lon Magnus, Max Metzger, Brian Nern, Dan Patterson, Don Riley, John Roberts, Fred Schaefer, Robert Sutton, the music man, Gordon Thompson, Harold Ware, Carl White, Dan Whipple. You guys stand up, every one of you. Let's give them a hand. And I also want to thank Michael Verner, who plays the piano every week. Uh, Jim Williams, you're on this team. And our kitchen staff. We want to thank them, Cody and Mandy and Sally and Linda. We thank our kitchen staff for all they do for us. And in case you, you hadn't thought about it, we don't have angels who set up the tables every night. But let me tell you who takes care of us in our facilities. Sam Ador, Kelvin Allen, Gregory Blanton, Marco Island, John Lyam, and Sue Sarkinen. Let's thank them for setting us up and taking care of us. And then we've got a communications team that uh, prepares uh, our, overhead, our uh, overheads here, our PowerPoint, and who uh, see to it that it's run every week and who communicate with you guys. And that would be my assistant, Marcia Smith, uh, Matt Mantooth, Timothy McCollum, Christy Paganoni, uh, Rob Roden, and also Rachel in Michael Gatlin's office. Let's thank them for all that they do. And if I left you out, including all you guys who have ushered throughout uh, our time here and helped us in a number of ways, and those of you who have been on uh, Amen mission trips and, and uh, local efforts, uh, I'm sorry. We appreciate all of you. And this is just to say you can see how small my part is. <laughs> these, these folks are the ones who really make it run, and we owe them a, a debt of gratitude. Thank you guys for uh, making this uh, such a wonderful time for all of us. Well, we've been studying Deuteronomy, and as Fred mentioned last time, we're going to study Acts. We're not going to study Acts. I'll just tease him. We are going to study Acts. Uh, just, just messing with you, Fred. Uh, but we are going to study Acts next uh, fall, and I'm really excited about it. The whole thing's already charted, charted out. We've got all the guest speakers that are going to be here. 
so we gave a good lineup of guest speakers and uh, 28 wonderful chapters in Acts to go through. You've been thinking about Deuteronomy. When I mentioned that to you last spring and said, this is really a great book, you went, huh, and you laughed. <laughs> and I think we've seen that, hey, Deuteronomy really is a key book. Uh, it, it shows us the very nature of our relationship with God. It's also a kinetic book. It, you know, when you, when you first read it, it, it looks stale and it looks like it's static. But you realize, no, this is a, this is a book that prepares uh, God's people to go in and take possession of the land. And just like we're to take possession of what God has given us, we need that book. And we've seen how kinetic it is. When we get to Acts, talk about kinetic. My goodness, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we're going to see how our mission, the whole idea of this is men on mission uh, next, next year. So uh, get yourselves all prepared. You can start reading through Acts and maybe some ancillary materials. We'll have uh, a good commentary that we're going to suggest that you use as time allows uh, for next year, as well as our ESV study Bible, uh, and uh, bring your friends uh, next fall. And of course, we have the summer amen as well. Well, let's, let's look at chapter 32 in Deuteronomy. We're finishing up today. But before we do, let's, let's just back up a moment and let's realize where we are in the context, where we've been. Remember what's going on. The children of Israel have been through the wilderness. They've been delivered out of Egypt. We studied that in Exodus. They've gone through the wilderness. We studied that in Exodus. Now they're at the end of their wilderness journey. They are on the east side of the Jordan. They are looking into the promised land. And just as they've had many trials and travails up to this time, they're now looking at a land that is populated with very big people who are not known to be very nice, called the Canaanites. And the Israelites know they're supposed to go in there and take it, and they have no idea how they're going to do this. Of course, they, they couldn't conceive of something like the walls of Jericho coming down by just merely marching around them and singing praise songs seven times. They couldn't imagine something like that. And they couldn't imagine that they could defeat these people, but they, that's because they couldn't imagine God's power being worked on their behalf. But God is telling them not only how to take the land, but He's telling them how to keep the land. And how does He do that? In this deposit of Deuteronomy. He is showing them the nature of their relationship. The nature of their relationship is that God is the suzerain king and they're vassal kings. Yes, they're kings and queens, but they're vassal kings under the suzerain king, God himself. And the nature of our relationship is the same as that of a vassal king who has dominion and rule and power, but who serves at the pleasure of the suzerain king, who is the great emperor of all. And in that relationship, we've seen, first of all, you need the preamble. And in that preamble, you need to be reminded who the suzerain is and who you are and how you got where you are. And the only reason you're a vassal king is because God allows you to be one. In fact, he made you one. And in that preamble from 1-1 to 4:43 in Deuteronomy, we had rehearsed for us what God has done for us. And so when we think about our relationship with God, if we had a covenant preamble, we would say, okay, let's remember what happened in the Garden of Eden, and then let's remember what God did to send His Son, and we would have rehearsed for us who Jesus is. In fact, basically what you would get is the gospel. You'd get one of the gospels. There's the covenant preamble. This is who Jesus is, the kind of person He was. He is fully God, fully man. And then here's what He did in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the cross of Calvary, and then at the end, there's the empty tomb. And then you'd see Pentecost. Here's the power of the Spirit coming upon you. 
That's the covenant preamble. It's who God is and what He has done for you and how you got where you are. As we've said before, we're like turtles on a fence post. And when you see that, you know somebody put that turtle there. He couldn't get there by himself. So the covenant preamble shows us that we're turtles on a fence post. And we're mighty fine turtles at that. So that's the covenant preamble. Then you remember when we started with 444, all the way through the end of chapter 26, here we get the covenant stipulations. This is... These are the rules and regulations by which we live life together. The first part of that, 444 through the end of chapter 11, were what we call the general stipulations, generally speaking, the Ten Commandments. Here are the the, the general ideas, the general framework of our relationship together and how we are to perform. Then you get to chapter 12 through 26, you get what are known as the specific stipulations, that is, in case you didn't get the big idea and you weren't, didn't have enough imagination to apply it specifically to your life, let us help you out. If you didn't know what it means not to commit adultery, let me explain to you exactly what that means. In case you didn't know what it means not to bear false witness, let me show you exactly what that means in loving your neighbor. So the general stipulations lead to the specific stipulations. Now, after that, we saw in verses 27 and 28 something very important that this whole thing makes a huge difference. There are consequences in our relationship with God. If you walk faithfully with Him, not perfectly, but faithfully with Him, trusting in Him, abiding by His Word, you're going to experience an abundance of His blessing. If, however, you turn your back on Him, and if you choose other gods, and you start worshiping them and whoring after the idols, then you're going to find the brunt of His cursing coming upon you. And it's very specific, we saw, the kinds of things that are going to happen to Israel if they turn their back on God. And we noticed that the cursings were significantly longer in length than the blessings were. Why? Well, because God is severely warning us. Also, we mentioned that He knows that we are going to turn our backs on Him. So he makes it a matter of record. I told you so. I'm warning you seriously. And so that we'll know, when bad things start to happen to us as Israel, when things are all goofed up, we can go back to the Word and we'll find a description of every one of those things that are happening to us and we will be shown cause and effect. Here is how you got here. This ancient document told you in the first place, if you walk this way, you're going to experience this kind of misery under God's hand of judgment. Then we saw, furthermore, and this is all typical covenant document. Remember, in the second millennium B.C., the suzerain king would cut these kinds of documents with their vassal kings. It's all classic form, ancient Hittite treaty form. The fourth element, uh, after the preamble, the general, the specific stipulations, and, and the uh, sanctions, I guess that'd make it the fifth element, uh, are what we call the covenant, or rather the document clause. That is, I've given this to you as a matter of record. I want you to keep it in this place. I'll have my copy. You'll have your copy. In fact, some scholars say this is what it means to have the two tablets of the law. You know, normally in, in uh, historic Christian theology, we've said the two tablets of the law, first four commandments, the laws pertaining to God, next six commandments, the laws pertaining to uh, our neighbor. But what some scholars say is, no, the two tablets of the covenant actually represent this. 
One copy for me, one copy for you. And so what we've seen is there is a document clause. Now, what does the document clause consist of? Well, God says to Moses, go write this down and put this in the Ark of the Covenant. And he also says to him, Moses, teach them this song. And we saw the song of Moses. It was to be taught to the people. And what the song really does, it indicts us for our misbehavior. And we're singing a song for centuries that tells what God's going to do when we turn our back on Him. So that when we turn our back on Him, we remember that song and say, oh yeah, I guess that's why we're in so much trouble. The song itself, the church hymnal, remains as a testimony against the church so that we will remember it's not because I didn't tell you. It's not because it's rocket science. It's not because it's done before you every day. No, it's because you have a hard head and a hard heart. So there's that testimony that stands against us all the time. That's the document clause. Now, we also uh, are, are shown how there's going to be a succession. And that's in a covenant treaty. In fact, the suzerain says, if your vassal king, your king, your regional king, if he dies, this treaty continues. I'm not just making this treaty with one of your kings. No, this isn't for any of your kings. And let the next king know. Let the son of your king now, who's likely to be the next king, let him know now. All these things apply to him just as they did to his dad. And let all of you all know that just as it applied to this one, it'll apply to this one. So we are given the succession of Moses and Joshua. So this is going to apply after, Joshua, after Moses dies. This is not just for Moses. It's not just for his administration. No, it's for Joshua's administration too. All that's covered in the document clause. It's part of the covenant. And so it's true with us. No matter who your leaders are, no matter what administration you're under, you know, whether it's Steve Gaines or Adrian Rogers or, or, or somebody else, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, this is God's relationship with His people. Now what we come to is the very end of the book. And you're wondering, oh, golly, after all that, what else is left to be said? <laughs> you know, isn't the document covered? Doesn't this cover all of the covenant? Yeah, it does, if you're only writing a second millennium B.C. document. If this were only Hittite treaty form, we're through. This study has already been concluded. But, gentlemen, we're not just dealing with a Hittite suzerain king. We're dealing with God. He's very different. When you're, when you, and we've seen that when you're looking at how the Bible in the New Testament and the Old Testament uses contemporary forms, literary forms, of course you'll notice the, the similarities. But what you want to especially notice are the dissimilarities. Notice this dissimilarity. This treaty ends in a very different way than the treaty between a typical human suzerain and vassal. It ends with massive blessing. In other words, we've already seen that the blessing and the curses were weighted toward the cursings. And that's the way it typically was with a, with a suzerain vassal treaty covenant. That the cursings are always going to be more explicit. I'm going to take your head off if you do this. It's to warn people with guilt and fear. But God reverses this whole thing. And what it is, it's typical of everything you see in the Bible. Of course, we have plenty of warnings. Why do we have warnings? Well, because the building's on fire and you've got to get out. And God loves His children. He's going to warn us. But what's going to be the last word? What's Moses' last word? 120 years old. 
about ready to go up on Mount Nebo and just kick it off, you know, and go on from here. What's going to be his last word? Well, you'll see. It's an incredible word. It's a word of, of great, great blessing. And it's the last word for amen this year. It's the last word of the Bible, as a matter of fact. It's the last word of most letters Paul sends. It's a word, word of blessing, and there's a reason for it. Well, let's look at chapter 32. We'll start right there with verses 48 through 52, and uh, we'll kind of read as we go along. 32:48. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, Go up this mountain of the Abirim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel for a possession. And die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Well, let's start with this in these first five verses. We all die because of God's covenant curse. We all die because of God's covenant curse. Actually, when Adam was created out of the dust of the ground, he was placed in the Holy Land, the Garden of Eden. Some scholars think, I mean, we don't know where the Garden of Eden was for sure. Some scholars think it actually was the Holy Land. Uh, some think it was over near where Iraq is. But some suspect it really was Israel. And Adam was put in the Holy Land, in, in Eden. And what was he given? A covenant. God says, let me tell you who I am. I'm the one who made you. You're, you're there because of me. I breathe life into you. I'm the one who gives you this nice wife. I'm the one who gives you all these animals. It gives you all this land to toil and take care of, and it's all peaceful, and it's all beautiful, and it's all for you. There's only one thing. Here's a stipulation. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do that, Robert. <laughs> I know you're thinking about it. Don't do it. Okay? So that's one, just one stipulation. How do we do? Not so well. It's like, you know, wet paint don't touch. Check it out. You know, one stipulation. And what did Adam do? He broke the stipulation. So what happens? He gets the sanction. What was the sanction? If you eat of it, you shall surely die. So you see, it's a covenant arrangement, even in the Garden of Eden. So what happens when Adam fails the covenant? The curse of the covenant comes upon him. That's what you get in Genesis chapter 3. The curse is the ground because of you, he says to the evil one. And he curses the evil one. But then he pronounces... Woe and cursing upon the woman and upon the man. Because we are enduring the covenant sanctions for violating the stipulations. And because of that, we're children of Adam and Eve, and we're born into the world with a curse upon us. But the curse is being lifted, isn't it? But even though it's being lifted, even as on Moses, we still are experiencing old age, sicknesses, sorrow, disease, chaos, defrauding one another. All of this is a result of the curse of God in the covenant with the one He made. 
Moses is experiencing the same thing. He's a man who was a friend with God. He knew him face to face. He was the humblest man on the face of the earth in the Old Testament. And yet he too is going to die. And Moses, even in this stellar 40-year leadership, I mean, you could search all the leaders in world history. You won't find anybody who is more magnificent than Moses. He's one of the greatest, if not the greatest leader ever outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Moses screwed up in Numbers 20. He was supposed to speak to the rock and he struck the rock out of anger against the people of God. It was a horrible sin. He violated what God told him to do and he will pay a price. And just like sometimes some of you whose lives have been changed dramatically because of the gospel, you're still living with some consequences of your life before you became a Christian. And you live with consequences in your life after a Christian too. But sometimes we, we did great things you know, awful sins in the past. And we're thinking, well, can't I just, you know, aren't I forgiven those things? Why am I still suffering from them? Well, yes, you're forgiven. Believe me, you're forgiven. But you're still bearing in this life, in this body, some of the consequences of what you did before you came to Christ. So is Moses. Stop your complaint. He's told by the Lord, go up that mountain, and Moses, here's your assignment. Die. (laughs) How do you like that? Just go up there and die. Here's your assignment. Die. And die well. And don't tell me you don't deserve it to die. And Moses, don't tell me you didn't deserve it. As great a man as he was, we had the curse of the covenant in Adam and Eve. We've acted just like them. We are obviously their children. We've inherited the curse. And furthermore, we've added to it with things that we ourselves have done. And yet, we come to Christ The curse is lifted, but the temporal consequences will still abide with us. But we're not discouraged. Why? Because we have a life after death, gentlemen. Our perspective has completely changed. So what if I die tomorrow? What if I suffer some travail because of something I did and I can't get myself out of it? What if? What difference does it make? My Scope of perspective now has been infinitely expanded into the heavens. I'm a new man. That's not me. My body's paying a price. My flesh is paying a price. I'm not paying it. I'm going on. I'm a new Sandy. I've got to, I'm going to have a new future. I'll have a new body, a new world. And that's the way Moses must look at it now. At the end of a stellar 40 years of leadership, he must also remember striking the rock and and bearing some consequences for that. But we all have this. We all have this. And the way in which we transcend it is, in our minds, we transcend through hope, even the temporal consequences of our own misbehavior. Now, let's look at chapter 33. And when we get here, we're going to see that we all flourish because of God's covenant blessing. So we, we all die, and that's the ultimate consequence of our sin. Uh, We all die uh, because of God's covenant curse, but we all flourish because of God's covenant blessing. Now, look at the, the first verse here. This is the blessing. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, that was a title for a prophet. Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. Now, notice something. Moses has been told that his assignment is to die. 
Well, when you're told your assignment is to die, what's the natural thing you do? Oh, no. Die? I wonder what that's like. I wonder what it's like to have your liver just dissolve. I wonder what it's like to just have your brain cells go one at a time. You just slip off. What would that be like? We're just self-absorbed. Not with Moses. Not with a man of hope. Not with a man who knows there's something beyond the grave. Something beyond Mount Nebo. What does he do? He's thinking about the ones behind him. Is this not amazing? This is what difference it means to be liberated by the gospel. You are a servant. You are an agent of God. You're a man of God till you draw that last breath. You're in ministry and service to other people, especially those under your charge and under your influence. As long as you have life and breath, this is exactly the way Moses is thinking. What happens when he's told to die? Okay, I'm going to bless the people of God. Wow, it's amazing. Now, gentlemen, what the key here is to know the blessing of God yourself. And then you pass it on. Get this, please, in this whole final word of Moses, which is a word of blessing. What's happening? First of all, he's received a blessing. He trusts in the Lord. He knows him face to face. He knows his kindness. He, he knows, you know, in Exodus 33 and 34, he knows that he's a God who has mercy upon whom he will have mercy and has compassion upon whom he will have compassion. He is a merciful and compassionate God. Moses is a blessed man as he's dying. He knows he's blessed. And it requires that in order to be a man of blessing. So you have to receive the blessing and then you have to learn how to give the blessing. Now, some of you will be familiar with this book 25 years ago, The Blessing by Gary Smalley and John Trent. It's really kind of a book about family life, marriage and family life. And their, their point is we need to learn to be men who bless others. Let me give you their five components of a blessing. They studied the Scripture's from Genesis to Revelation, looking at all the places where blessing is taking place, and they found five components in it. And this is to receive a blessing and to give a blessing. The first one they noticed is that very often when blessing is being communicated, it involves meaningful touch. For example, when, when Jacob is blessed, when Jacob is blessing Joseph and his other children, there's touch. So if you're blessing your children, put your hand on them. Blessing your wife, put your hand on her. You touch. So there's often meaningful touch. Secondly, there is a communication of high value, says Trent and Smalley. You are, uh, well, no, I'm sorry. The second thing is that it involves words. It's, it's a spoken uh, message. But then thirdly, it's that, that that message is one of high value. So you're, you're saying, you're, you're reminding someone of their value to you and of their value to the Lord. So a blessing involves touch often, not always, but often involves touch, especially if it's someone in a, you're, you're in an intimate relationship with a family relation. Secondly, it involves spoken words. Thirdly, those are words that communicate high value. Fourthly, the words communicate a bright and hopeful future. A blessing, they say, when you look in the Bible, communicates your future as a bright future. And then fifthly, they say, a blessing involves the blesser's commitment to the blessee. So if I'm blessing you, I'm 
communicating high value to you. I am communicating a promising future to you, and I'm communicating to you I'm in this with you. I'm committed to making the, being part of the uh, way in which this blessing comes about in your life. Now, just think about the power of that, that if you're receiving that from God, a blessing from God, He's putting His hand upon you. He's speaking to you, which is a great gift. And in fact, He opens your heart to understand He is speaking to you so that He can bless you. That's the reason He regenerates you by the power of the Spirit, is so that He can speak into you. And you know it's your Father talking to you. So he, put, he touches you. He puts His hand on you. He speaks to you. He tells you of your value. He gives you a bright and hopeful future. And then He says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you in this. I'm going to make it happen. Now, there's a great blessing. And what Smalley and Trent are saying that if you've experienced that, then you're one who will want to give that blessing to other people. As a matter of fact, one of your assignments, wherever you have authority, wherever you have authority, but especially in familial relations and with your closest friends, it is your assignment to be a blesser. As great as Moses was, Jesus said, The people who know me will be greater than Solomon, greater than the greatest Old Testament figures because you have my spirit. You you have it intuitively. You don't just have to be taught on the outside. You have it on the inside. And everyone here is a Moses, a man of God, who is a blesser. Now let's look at how Moses did this. And then let's think for a moment how we're going to do it. Okay? Let's look at how he did it. First of all, This blessing is a uh, God blesses us from heaven, verses 1 through 5. Moses is basically making an announcement that whatever he has to say about our value and about our future, now he's going to say something about our value and our future, but what he's saying is this is not just my message. This comes from God, from heaven itself. And he's showing how it's a divine blessing and he is an agent of divine blessing. He blesses us from heaven. He came, he says in in uh, verses uh, 1, uh, 2 following, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. But look, more than the mountains, He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at His right hand. In other words, this God came down from above. This is the one true and living God to bless us. He blessed us from heaven. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms, Ephesians 1.3. So when Paul blesses us, blesses the church, he says you're blessed with every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms. It's not just an apostolic blessing. It's a divine blessing, and I'm the apostolic messenger of it. Now secondly, in verses 6 through 25, notice that He blesses us by name. Moses doesn't go through the entire two million people. But he he takes each of the family names. And he says, okay, let's talk about every single one of your families. And these families have characteristics. You ever notice this? We could take all your last names and take a few minutes at the table. And if you all happen to know each other's families, here's what you could do. Well, I've noticed this trait in your family. 
Now, I've noticed that trait in your family. And I've noticed it for four generations. <laughs> you know, I remember as a little kid, I was six years old, my grandfather had died years before. And I sat in the barber's chair. And the barber said, my son, your hair is just like E.L., E.L. Wilson. I didn't know my granddaddy, but my hair is just like his, apparently. So poor, poor guy. Uh, and we, we carry these traits, and everybody knows it, except the ones who, of course, are in the families. We think we're just completely objective and don't have any traits. But, yeah, you got them. Moses recounts a lot of those traits and a lot of those stories, even from Genesis. Because if you remember, Jacob also goes through a blessing. Genesis 49 does the same thing before he dies. Moses picks up on those things because they're still true hundreds of years later and they represent the stories that brought these families along. Now, for example, uh, he says, let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. (laughs) Well, okay, Reuben had a little affair with his father's concubine. So let's not have too many Reubens out there. But he is the firstborn, so bless him, Lord. Uh, So if you're in the Reuben family, we're watching out for you. Uh, Not quite sure what you're going to do there. But we we want you to live and not die. We want you to flourish, but not too many of you, or we'd all be pregnant. Um, And then, you know, as you get to verse 7, he talks about Judah. Uh, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. With your hands, contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. Is that not sort of a foretelling of what's going to happen with Judah? He's going to defeat his adversaries. And who's... Who's the, the son of Judah? Well, David himself, who defeated Goliath. You better believe they're going to defeat their adversaries. And who's David's son? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, who defeats Satan himself on the cross of disarming the principalities and powers, putting them to a public spectacle on the cross. He defeats him there at the cross. Yes, of course, they're going to contend for their enemies. You see how Moses gets into each family. Now, Keep going. And of Levi. And, of course, this is a really long one. Why is that? Well, because Moses was a Levite. (laughs) But Moses blesses the Levites because, well, the Levites were the ones who stood up. And I've made made the note here in Exodus 32, 26 through 29. They stood up and even slayed their own people in order to stand up and be loyal to God. These are the Levites who are faithful. And we'll make priests out of them. Well, for, for two reasons. We'll make priests out of them because they were faithful. We'll also make priests out of them because these are violent people. We better get the sword out of their hands. (laughs) Let's let them be preachers. And so they made a bunch of clergy birds out of them uh, so they wouldn't be killing everybody. But they're also loyal people. So they make clergy out of them. And you can go on and on. Benjamin, the beloved of the Lord, dwells in safety. Look at this description. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. What a statement. Benjamin, the younger child of Rachel, the brother of Joseph, the cherished one, the favored one. Uh, Benjamin has God between his shoulders, right there in his heart. What a statement about a man. And of course, it's said of Benjamin uh, by Jacob that he will, he will triumph and be like a wolf. And then Joseph, of course, has a very long statement here. That would be Ephraim and Manasseh. You can go right on through Zebulun and Gad and Dan and Naphtali and Asher. We don't have time to talk about all of them. But what you see there is that each one of them are named and traits are given of each of them. But notice that they're given high value. 
all these awful sinners who in the story of Genesis we can find that they have sexual affairs they shouldn't have, even incest. They kill people they shouldn't kill. They're violent. They betray each other like they did with Joseph, selling him to slavery. These are a bunch of scoundrels. And yet in the blessing, even though they're going to experience the consequences of the curse and the disobedience also, in the midst of all that chaos, Moses can find something that is commendable in each one of them. And for each one of them, even though it may not be all the blessing they would know if they were perfect, like Reuben, let him live, not die, but just not too many of them. (laughs) There's a blessing with a hope. Your tribe is not going to be wiped out. You'll always live, even though you're going to bear the consequences for your behavior. Every one of them. Something valuable and something bright about their future, name by name. Well, uh, some years ago, my daughter, who's to be married in, in June, when she had just graduated from high school, 18 years of age, uh, 11 of us dads who had daughters graduating that very year from high school, we said, okay, let's, let's take these girls off and do something with them. So we went to Israel. Actually, we started in Egypt. And when we got off the plane, 11 old men with these cute little girls, our travel agent said, you know what y'all look like? 11 old men with female clones standing next to them. (laughs) So we get out of Egypt. We travel, uh, these 22 people, through the wilderness. We climb Mount Sinai, uh, and we go on up Jordan, and we're getting ready to go into Israel, and we get to Mount Nebo. 22 of us. We go into an old uh, uh, 4th century chapel that was built there on Mount Nebo where Moses made his, his announcements and made his blessing of the children of Israel. And you look out over the plains of Nebo and you can see where the children of Israel were. Those two million people were just wading across the Jordan. And each place that we stopped, uh, a father and daughter team were assigned to give the devotions. And uh, so there was a father-daughter team assigned to give the devotions. It was Larry Jensen, actually, assigned to give the devotions on Mount Nebo. And here was, here was Larry's idea. Well, Moses blessed the children of Israel there. Why don't the fathers bless their daughters? So uh, we all, without telling our daughters, prepared our blessings. And remember what a blessing is. There's touch. There are, there are words you've got to speak, guys. You've got to say something. And you're communicating value and a bright future, and you're committing yourself to them. And we heard these uh, 11 men, one at a time, coming down out of the little, little choir loft in this 4th century chapel coming down to the middle of that choir loft, their daughter seated with her hand on her shoulder, giving her her blessing. Of course, I don't know how the girls felt about it, but there's hardly a dry eye among among the men. And one after the other, we just blessed our daughters. In the audience with us was one of my favorite missionaries, uh, Aileen Coleman. She has been ministering in Jordan among Bedouins uh, for 50 years. And she has probably led about 200 Bedouins to Christ over her years, these Muslim background Bedouins. She has a wonderful clinic there. And uh, the king and and the royal family are very glad to have her there. They provide protection for her for many years because she comes under attack regularly. But the the message is always, well, if if you all want to do the kind of work that Aileen's doing, then we can ask Aileen to leave. But until you all do it, she's serving the poorest people and the Bedouin tribes, and we're keeping her. 
And so she continues to minister to lung diseases. And the reason she does lung diseases is because she gets to keep them a long time in her clinic uh, to cure them. And that means she gets to communicate the gospel to them. So Aileen was with us. And after we all finished, Aileen got up to speak and tell these young 18-year-old girls uh, what it means to be a woman of God. Hardly heard a more powerful sermon in all my life. At the end of that, she said, Now, ladies, I don't know if you know what just happened to you, but something very, very special. Your daddies put their hands on you, and they, they all blessed you. And they told you how valuable you are. And they told you what God has in store for you in the days ahead. And they've committed themselves to you. It's a wonderful thing. She said, I grew up in a family where that never happened to me. My dad never told me that he loved me. He never blessed me. At that point, Larry said, time out. Aileen, would you please sit on the chair? And 11 men got around her and put our hands on her. And we announced before God what a wonderful woman and daughter of God she is. And what a glorious future she has, especially when she sees those 200 Bedouins who will welcome her into heavenly dwellings. And what a commitment we would all make to her to be part of that blessing to her. And she said, I got my blessing. And you know what? You can do it. You can do it. You have tremendous power. You don't have to be an apostle. You don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to be a covenant mediator like Moses. All you have to be is a man who knows the Lord, who has received a blessing yourself, who knows that God has announced your value, has told you of your future, and has committed himself to you. Now you've got all you need to be a blessing, a biblical blessing to somebody else. Well, notice he does it by individual. But notice then that he also blesses us as a people, verses 26 through 29. He blesses us as a people. Now, how does he do this? First of all, he reminds us of a few things. That is, that he is unique. This is C1, in case you lost your way. Verses 26 through 29. He is unique. There is none like God, O Jeshurun. And we've seen that Jeshurun is a word that he uses for Israel. It's a pet word. Now, my formal name is Sanders. People call me Sandy. That's my Jeshurun. And he's giving us a nickname. Jeshurun, remember this. There's no God like me. You're going to have the Canaanites tell you there are many gods. They're going to bow down before their gods. They're going to tell you that all ways are equal. Everybody has a right to their own God. They're right to have a right to their own God, but they're not equal. Only one of them really is. The other ones really are not. People say they are, but they're not. They have a right to say they are, but that doesn't make their gods are. Their gods are still are not, even though they say they are. And you just remember this. There's only one God. I am He. So I am unique. And you get that in various places of the Scripture, including in Exodus when they're delivered from uh, Egypt. Then notice, secondly, he's saying, I'm not only the only God who is, but I'm near to you. God is near. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And does this not sound just like the psalm of Moses in Psalm 90? Uh, The everlasting God is your dwelling place. You've been our dwelling place and the dwelling place of future generations. In fact, you'll find the similar wording. If you you come in off the east lot into our building, you'll see it inscribed in stone that the Lord is our dwelling place. He's saying, look, the real dwelling place that you should be concerned about is not the holy land. 
It's your relationship with me. I'm your dwelling place. Live in me, not on a land. Live in me, and then the land will take care of itself. And notice thirdly, he says, I'm fierce. He thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So you will contend very well against your enemies. You need not fear this overwhelmingly pagan culture that you're getting ready to go into after you cross the Jordan. Don't fear it. I'm the only God. I'm completely committed to you. I'm near you. And I will destroy your enemies. Don't fear the devil, he even says. Jesus says, don't fear the devil. Although, if it's just a battle between you and the devil, you're toast. This is over. But he who is within you is greater than he who is in the world. So don't fear him. He is fierce. And then look at the results. Fourthly, we are happy. Happy are you, O Israel. And look at this phrase. Who is like you? Look at verse 29. Who is like you? So God says, who is like me? And then he says to the church, who is like you? I'm unique. You're unique. And what's unique about you? You're saved of the Lord. You've been spared by Him. He has drawn you out of the fire of His judgment to be His own treasured possession, to be something very special to Him. And He hasn't done this with everybody. All the world religions have a right to their religions. And we will die for that principle. But that doesn't make them right. There's a unique people of God who have been saved. How have we been saved? The curses of the covenant have fallen upon another. So that we're no longer cursed. That's how we can be lifted out of the fire and God can still be just and keep His word and His threatenings. If you sin, you will die. How will He keep that promise if He also keeps the promise to keep us alive? And we have sinned. Here's how He keeps the promise. He takes the curse that rightly belongs upon us and He puts the curse on Jesus Christ. And now we are free to live. And that's unique to anyone only who believes in Jesus Christ. So he says here, who is a people like you? Which is to say, there are no people like you. And sometimes you forget it. And therefore you forget your blessing. You've forgotten the uniqueness of being a follower of Christ. Now when we come to chapter 34, 1 through 12, notice this. That we all die because of the curse. We all live because of the blessing but we all wait for the final blessing of the covenant. We're all waiting for the final consummation. We don't have it yet. So don't act like it. We are grateful for everything that we have. We're even more grateful for what we're going to have. So we're a people who are happy. We have what we need for life and godliness. But we don't have right now everything we're going to have. We're a people who wait in hope. So what do we learn here? First of all, the first four verses of 34 teach us that God has promised us something very important. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. And you can look back in Genesis. He made this promise hundreds of years before. He's going to keep that promise. There is a land that belongs to you. He's told you you're going to have it. He's going to keep that promise. So these people who are wondering if they could ever defeat the Canaanites, Moses is simply saying, hey, he already promised. Don't think about process. Think about promise. 
And God will take care of the process. Secondly, our greatest covenant mediator failed. So we have to wait because Moses failed. He's going to die. And anybody who's led you in this life has failed. And my, my proof, every one of them die. Every time, 100%. 10 out of 10, they all die. Why? 10 out of 10 failed. They can't save you. Moses can't save you. He failed. But thirdly, verses 8b through 12, the end of the chapter, God will provide a new covenant mediator. He says, okay, I'm going to provide Joshua. Joshua, verse 9, the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him. Now we've already seen the, the meaning of covenant succession, that God will always provide for you. He'll always provide leadership for you. When my mentors die, I needn't worry. God's going to provide me some more mentors. And He has, and He will. He'll always provide. But this is much more than this. This name Joshua comes from the very word salvation. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate Joshua. He's the one who is the covenant mediator. In Hebrews, we're told, He's better than Moses. Why? He hasn't failed. And when He died, you couldn't keep Him in the grave. The Lord said to Jesus, too, in the Garden of Gethsemane, I've got an assignment for you. Die. But gentlemen, i got some news for you. The devil couldn't hold on to him. They couldn't keep him dead. Why? Because he didn't fail. He's the covenant mediator that we all need. The one who can truly take us into the Holy Land. The one who will go with us. He doesn't have to stop short. He didn't stop at Calvary. He didn't stop at the tomb. The tomb is empty. The bands were burst because Jesus was going right into the promised land and He is there right now preparing a place for the rest of His people who are crossing the Jordan of death to join Him right there. He has not failed. And God has taken this wonderful, beautiful man of God, Moses, who failed and has succeeded Him with one who hasn't failed and who never will fail to lead us through and to get us home. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And so when Jesus comes on the earth, He goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there He is transfigured into a blazingly white form. And who is on His right and who is on His left? Elijah and Moses. And Moses is there in the Promised Land on the Mount of Transfiguration to testify, this is the one who is to take you in. The whole covenant relationship that we have with God can only work if we have a covenant mediator who will lead us into the Holy Land by Himself, who will provide atonement for our sins, who will remove the curse from us so that we all go in and none of us fail. That's exactly where Deuteronomy leads us. And that's the reason you can't understand the Old Testament without Deuteronomy. And you really can't understand Jesus and the New Testament either. Because this is everything that Jesus came to do. It was that which Moses, the greatest man who ever lived, even he couldn't accomplish for us. And his successor, Jesus Christ, did it for us. As we go into this summer, let's just remember this. Glory be to Jesus' name. Glory be to Jesus' name. Glory be to Jesus' name, the one who has come to bless us. And how did he start his ministry? Did he not start it with a Sermon on the Mount?
and did the Sermon on the Mount not start with the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And when he left here on the ascension, which we celebrate in just a few days, did he not raise his hands? And as he was leaving this earth until he returns again, did he not bless the people of God? That's exactly what he did. And you are the unique, distinctive people who have received this mighty blessing that is eternal in its endurance and infinite in its scope. And you received it. And when that covenant mediator, the mediator of the treaty between us and God, returns, he will come with nothing for us but blessing in his hand. And then you'll know, you'll know what it means to have the blessing of the covenant on your head. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we exalt you. You came to this earth knowing what was required of you because you knew the covenant that had been made with us. And you knew that we, including Moses, all broke it. And you knew when you came there was no way you could come to this earth and have anything good for us unless it cost you your whole life. And you gave it. And you triumphed over your enemies. You rose from the dead. And you succeeded. And you've gone into the holy place, the holy land. And you're preparing it for us. And we, the covenant people, on the merits of another, will cross the Jordan and come into the land of Jesus where we shall find nothing but covenant blessing forever and ever and ever. Praise your holy name. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you.